0: Part One, Chapters One and Two of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leon Meyer. Democracy in America, Volume Two, by Alexis de Tocqueville. Translated by Henry Reeve. Part One. INFLUENCE OF DEMOCRACY ON THE ACTION OF INTELLECT IN THE UNITED STATES CHAPTER I. PHILOSOPHICAL METHOD AMONG THE AMERICANS I think that in no country in the civilized world is less attention paid to philosophy than in the United States. The Americans have no philosophical school of their own, and they care but little for all the schools into which Europe is divided, the very names of which are scarcely known to them nevertheless it is easy to perceive that almost all the inhabitants of the united states conduct their understanding in the same manner and govern it by the same rules that is to say that without ever having taken the trouble to define the rules of a philosophical method they are in possession of one common to the whole people to evade the bondage of system and habit of family maxims class opinions and in some degree of national prejudices to accept tradition only as a means of information, and existing facts only as a lesson used in doing otherwise, and doing better, to seek the reason of things for oneself, and in oneself alone, to tend to results without being bound to means, and to aim at the substance through the form, such are the principal characteristics of what I shall call the philosophical method of the Americans. But if I go further, and if I seek amongst these characteristics, that which predominates over and includes almost all the rest, I discover that, in most of the operations of the mind, each American appeals to the individual exercise of his own understanding alone. America is, therefore, one of the countries in the world where philosophy is least studied and where the precepts of Descartes are best applied. Nor is this surprising. The Americans do not read the works of Descartes because their social condition deters them from speculative studies, but they follow his maxims because this very social condition naturally disposes their understanding to adopt them. In the midst of the continual movement, which agitates a democratic community, the tie which unites one generation to another is relaxed or broken. Every man readily loses the trace of the ideas of his forefathers or takes no care about them. Nor can men living in this state of society derive their belief from the opinions of the class to which they belong, for, so to speak, there are no longer any classes, or those which still exist are composed of such mobile elements that their body can never exercise a real control over its members. As to the influence which the intelligence of one man has on that of another— it must necessarily be very limited in a country where the citizens placed on the footing of a general similitude are all closely seen by each other and where as no signs of incontestable greatness or superiority are perceived in any one of them they are constantly brought back to their own reason as the most obvious and proximate source of truth It is not only confidence in this or that man which is then destroyed, but the taste for trusting the ipsy-dixit of any man whatsoever. Every one shuts himself up in his own breast, and affects from that point to judge the world. The practice which obtains amongst the Americans, of fixing the standard of their judgment in themselves alone, leads them to other habits of mind. As they perceive that they succeed in resolving, without assistance, all the little difficulties which their practical life presents, they readily conclude that everything in the world may be explained, and that nothing in it transcends the limits of the understanding. Thus they fall to denying what they cannot comprehend, which leaves them but little faith for whatever is extraordinary, and an almost insurmountable distaste for whatever is supernatural. As it is on their own testimony that they are accustomed to rely, they like to discern the object which engages their attention with extreme clearness. They therefore strip off as much as possible all that covers it. They rid themselves of whatever separates them from it. They remove whatever conceals it from sight, in order to view it more closely and in the broad day of light." this disposition of the mind soon leads them to contemn forms, which they regard as useless and inconvenient veils placed between them and the truth. The Americans, then, have not required to extract their philosophical method from books, they have found it in themselves. The same thing may be remarked in what has taken place in Europe. This same method has only been established and made popular in Europe in proportion as the condition of society has become more equal and men have grown more like each other. Let us consider for a moment the connection of the periods in which this change may be traced. In the sixteenth century the reformers subjected some of the dogmas of the ancient faith to the scrutiny of private judgment, but they still withheld from it the judgment of all the rest. In the seventeenth century, Bacon in the natural sciences, and Descartes in the study of philosophy in the strict sense of the term— abolished recognized formulas, destroyed the empire of tradition, and overthrew the authority of the schools. The philosophers of the eighteenth century, generalizing at length the same principle, undertook to submit to the private judgment of each man all the objects of his belief. Who does not perceive that Luther, Descartes, and Voltaire employed the same method, and that they differed only in the greater or less use which they professed should be made of it? why did the reformers confine themselves so closely within the circle of religious ideas why did descartes choosing only to apply his method to certain matters though he had made it fit to be applied to all declare that men might judge for themselves in matters philosophical but not in matters political how happened it that in the eighteenth century those general applications were all at once drawn from this same method, which Descartes and his predecessors had either not perceived or had rejected. To what, lastly, is the fact to be attributed, that, at this period, the method we are speaking of suddenly emerged from the schools, to penetrate into society, and become the common standard of intelligence, and that, after it had become popular among the French, it has been ostensibly adopted or secretly followed by all the nations of Europe. The philosophical method, here designated, may have been engendered in the sixteenth century. It may have been more accurately defined and more extensively applied in the seventeenth, but neither in one nor in the other could it be commonly adopted. Political laws, the condition of society, and the habits of mind which are derived from these causes, were as yet opposed to it. It was discovered at a time when men were beginning to equalize and assimilate their conditions it could only be generally followed in ages when these conditions had at length become nearly equal, and men nearly alike. The philosophical method of the eighteenth century is then not only French, but it is democratic, and this explains why it was so readily admitted throughout Europe, where it has contributed so powerfully to change the face of society. It is not because the French have changed their former opinions and altered their former manners, That they have convulsed the world, but because they were the first to generalize and bring to light a philosophical method, by the assistance of which it became easy to attack all that was old, and to open a path to all that was new. If it be asked why, at the present day, this same method is more rigorously followed and more frequently applied by the French than by the Americans, although the principle of equality be no less complete, and of more ancient date amongst the latter people, the fact may be attributed to two circumstances, which it is essential to have clearly understood in the first instance. It must never be forgotten that religion gave birth to Anglo-American society. In the United States, religion is therefore commingled with all the habits of the nation, and all the feelings of patriotism, whence it derives a peculiar force. To this powerful reason another of no less intensity may be added in america religion has as it were laid down its own limits religious institutions have remained wholly distinct from political institutions so that former laws have been easily changed whilst former belief has remained unshaken christianity has therefore retained a strong hold on the public mind in america and i would more particularly remark that its sway is not only that of a philosophical doctrine which has been adopted upon inquiry but of a religion which is believed without discussion. In the United States, Christian sects are infinitely diversified and perpetually modified, but Christianity itself is a fact so irresistibly established that no one undertakes either to attack or to defend it. The Americans, having admitted the principal doctrines of the Christian religion without inquiry, are obliged to accept in like manner a great number of moral truths originating in it and connected with it, Hence the activity of individual analysis is restrained within narrow limits, and many of the most important of human opinions are removed from the range of its influence. The second circumstance to which I have alluded is the following. The social condition and the constitution of the Americans are democratic, but they have not had a democratic revolution. They arrived upon the soil they occupy, in nearly the condition in which we see them at the present day, and this is of very considerable importance." There are no revolutions which do not shake existing belief, enervate authority, and throw doubts over commonly received ideas. The effect of all revolutions is, therefore, more or less, to surrender men to their own guidance, and to open to the mind of every man, avoid an almost unlimited range of speculation. When equality of conditions succeeds a protracted conflict between the different classes of which the elder society was composed, envy hatred and uncharitableness pride and exaggerated self-confidence are apt to seize upon the human heart and plant their sway there for a time this independently of equality itself tends powerfully to divide men to lead them to mistrust the judgment of others and to seek the light of truth nowhere but in their own understandings every one then attempts to be his own sufficient guide and makes it his boast to form his own opinions on all subjects. Men are no longer bound together by ideas, but by interests, and it would seem as if human opinions were reduced to a sort of intellectual dust, scattered on every side, unable to collect, unable to cohere. Thus that independence of mind which equality supposes to exist is never so great, nor ever appears so excessive, as at the time when equality is beginning to establish itself, and in the course of that painful labor by which it is established. That sort of intellectual freedom which equality may give ought, therefore, to be very carefully distinguished from the anarchy which revolution brings. Each of these two things must be severally considered, in order not to conceive exaggerated hopes or fears of the future. I believe that the men who will live under the new forms of society will make frequent use of their private judgment, but I am far from thinking that they will often abuse it. This is attributable to a cause of more general application to all democratic countries, and which in the long run must needs restrain in them the independence of individual speculation within fixed, and sometimes narrow, limits. I shall proceed to point out this cause in the next chapter. CHAPTER two, OF THE PRINCIPAL SOURCE OF BELIEF AMONG DEMOCRATIC NATIONS at different periods dogmatical belief is more or less abundant. It arises in different ways and it may change its object or its form. But under no circumstances will dogmatical belief cease to exist. Or in other words, men will never cease to entertain some implicit opinions without trying them by actual discussion. If everyone undertook to form his own opinions and to seek for truth by isolated paths struck out by himself alone, it is not to be supposed that any considerable number of men would ever unite in any common belief. But obviously without such common belief no society can prosper. Say, rather, no society can subsist, for without ideas held in common there is no common action, and without common action there may still be men, but there is no social body. In order that society should exist, and a fortiori that a society should prosper, it is required that all the minds of the citizens should be rallied and held together by certain predominant ideas unless each of them sometimes draws his opinions from the common source and consents to accept certain matters of belief at the hands of the community if i now consider man in his isolated capacity i find that dogmatical belief is not less indispensable to him in order to live alone is not less indispensable to him in order to live alone, than it is to enable him to cooperate with his fellow creatures. If man were forced to demonstrate to himself all the truths of which he makes daily use, his task would never end. He would exhaust his strength in preparatory exercises, without advancing beyond them. As from the shortness of his life, he has not the time, nor from the limits of his intelligence, the capacity to accomplish this, HE IS REDUCED TO TAKE UPON TRUST A NUMBER OF FACTS AND OPINIONS WHICH HE HAS NOT HAD EITHER THE TIME OR THE POWER TO VERIFY HIMSELF, BUT WHICH MEN OF GREATER ABILITY HAVE SOUGHT OUT OR WHICH THE WORLD ADOPTS. ON THIS GROUNDWORK HE RAISES FOR HIMSELF THE STRUCTURE OF HIS OWN THOUGHTS, NOR IS HE LED TO PROCEED IN THIS MANNER BY CHOICE SO MUCH AS HE IS CONSTRAINED BY THE INFLEXIBLE LAW OF HIS CONDITION. There is no philosopher of such great parts in the world, but that he believes a million of things on the faith of other people, and supposes a great many more truths than he demonstrates. This is not only necessary, but desirable. A man, who should undertake to inquire into everything for himself, could devote to each thing but little time and attention. His task would keep his mind in perpetual unrest, which would prevent him from penetrating to the depth of any truth or of grappling his mind indissolubly to any conviction. His intellect would be at once independent and powerless. He must therefore make his choice from amongst the various objects of human belief, and he must adopt many opinions without discussion, in order to search the better into that smaller number which he sets apart for investigation. It is true that, whoever receives an opinion on the word of another, does so far enslave his mind, but it is a salutary servitude which allows him to make a good use of freedom. A principle of authority must then always occur, under all circumstances, in some part or other of the moral and intellectual world. Its place is variable, but a place it necessarily has. The independence of individual minds may be greater or it may be less. Unbounded it cannot be. Thus the question is not to know whether any intellectual authority exists in the ages of democracy, but simply where it resides and by what standard it is to be measured. I have shown in the preceding chapter how the equality of conditions leads men to entertain a sort of instinctive incredulity of the supernatural, and a very lofty and often exaggerated opinion of the human understanding. The men who live at a period of social equality are not, therefore, easily led to place that intellectual authority to which they bow either beyond or above humanity. They commonly seek for the sources of truth in themselves, or in those who are like themselves. This would be enough to prove that at such periods no new religion could be established, and that all schemes for such a purpose would be not only impious, but absurd and irrational it may be foreseen that a democratic people will not easily give credence to divine missions, that they will turn modern prophets to a ready jest, and that they will seek to discover the chief arbiter of their belief within, and not beyond, the limits of their kind. When the ranks of society are unequal, and men unlike each other in condition, there are some individuals invested with all the power of superior intelligence, learning, and enlightenment whilst the multitude is sunk in ignorance and prejudice. Men, living at these aristocratic periods, are therefore naturally induced to shape their opinions by the superior standard of a person or class of persons, whilst they are averse to recognize the infallibility of the mass of the people. The contrary takes place in ages of equality. THE NEARER THE CITIZENS ARE DRAWN TO THE COMMON LEVEL OF AN EQUAL AND SIMILAR CONDITION, THE LESS PRONE DOES EACH MAN BECOME TO PLACE IMPLICIT FAITH IN A CERTAIN MAN OR A CERTAIN CLASS OF MEN. BUT HIS READINESS TO BELIEVE THE MULTITUDE INCREASES, AND OPINION IS MORE THAN EVER MISTRESS OF THE WORLD. NOT ONLY IS COMMON OPINION THE ONLY GUIDE WHICH PRIVATE JUDGMENT RETAINS AMONGST A DEMOCRATIC PEOPLE, BUT AMONGST SUCH A PEOPLE IT POSSESSES A POWER INFINITELY BEYOND WHAT IT HAS ELSEWHERE. At periods of equality, men have no faith in one another by reason of their common resemblance, but this very resemblance gives them almost unbounded confidence in the judgment of the public, for it would not seem probable, as they are all endowed with equal means of judging, but that the greater truth should go with the greater number. When the inhabitant of a democratic country compares himself individually with all those about him, he feels with pride that he is the equal of any one of them. But, when he comes to survey the totality of his fellows, and to place himself in contrast to so huge a body, he is instantly overwhelmed by the sense of his own insignificance and weakness. The same equality which renders him independent, of each of his fellow citizens taken severally, exposes him alone and unprotected to the influence of the greater number. The public has, therefore, among a democratic people, a singular power of which aristocratic nations could never so much as conceive an idea, for it does not persuade them to certain opinions, but it enforces them, and infuses them into the faculties by a sort of enormous pressure of the minds of all upon the reason of each. In the United States the majority undertakes to supply a multitude of ready-made opinions for the use of individuals, who are thus relieved from the necessity of forming opinions of their own everybody there adopts great numbers of theories on philosophy moral and politics without inquiry upon public trust and if we look to it very narrowly it will be perceived that religion herself holds her sway there much less as a doctrine of revelation than as a commonly received opinion the fact that the political laws of the americans are such that the majority rules the community with sovereign sway materially increases the power which that majority naturally exercises over the mind. For nothing is more customary in man than to recognize superior wisdom in the person of his oppressor. This political omnipotence of the majority in the United States doubtless augments the influence which public opinion would obtain without it over the mind of each member of the community, but the foundations of that influence do not rest upon it. They must be sought for in the principle of equality itself, not in the more or less popular institutions which men living under that condition may give themselves. The intellectual dominion of the greater number would probably be less absolute amongst a democratic people governed by a king than in the sphere of a pure democracy, but it will always be extremely absolute. And by whatever political laws men are governed in the ages of equality, it may be foreseen that faith in public opinion will become a species of religion there in the majority its ministering profit thus intellectual authority will be different but it will not be diminished and far from thinking that it will disappear i augur that it may readily acquire too much preponderance and confine the action of private judgment within narrower limits than are suited either to the greatness or the happiness of the human race In the principle of equality I very clearly discern two tendencies, the one leading the mind of every man to untried thoughts, the other inclined to prohibit him from thinking at all. And I perceive how, under the dominion of certain laws, democracy would extinguish that liberty of the mind to which a democratic social condition is favorable, so that... After having broken all the bondage once imposed on it, by ranks or by men, the human mind would be closely fettered to the general will of the greatest number. If the absolute power of the majority were to be substituted by democratic nations, for all the different powers which checked or retarded overmuch the energy of individual minds, the evil would only have changed its symptoms. Men would not have found the means of independent life— They would simply have invented, no easy task, a new dress for servitude. There is, and I cannot repeat it too often, there is in this matter for profound reflection for those who look on freedom as a holy thing, and who hate not only the despot, but despotism. For myself, when I feel the hand of power lie heavy on my brow, I care but little to know who oppresses me, and I am not the more disposed to pass beneath the yoke because it is held out to me by the arms of a million of men. End of Part 1, Chapters 1 and 2